Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, however you found us, I'm glad you're here. Today, David Morrison and I sit back and talk about uh, Parker Palmer. And according to the Center for Courage and Renewal's website, Parker Palmer is a world-renowned writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. Uh, David and I venture into also some topics regarding uh, Quakerism, which uh, Parker Palmer is a Quaker. Uh, Thank you again to Diego from Recording Moving Studios, Star City Studio, and as always, those drums in the background are courtesy of Monk Drums. You can find them at monkdrums.com. Lastly, if you could subscribe to Desert Rain Community Radio, give us a five-star review, and leave us a little bit of uh, information about what you think in the comments. We will uh, reply to those for show. Uh, If you want to hear more or see some of David Morrison's writings, go to theruined.com. You can also check out drcrpod.com or desertraincommunityradio.com. So that should be it. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Today we're continuing our series uh, where we sit back and check in and talk about uh, people that have been influential on the community here at Desert Rain. Mr. Morrison, how are you doing today? Pretty good out here in the Chihuahuan Desert. (laughs) It's it's been cold the last couple of days. The pond froze over yesterday. Yeah. Got our four days of winter going on. Yeah, we're bundled up here with the heater on. And today we will be discussing Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker author, professor, and activist um, that has been influential in both of our lives. And uh, maybe you could just kick us off about how you first um, first came encounter with uh, Parker Palmer's um, teachings. Yeah, well, I'd always been interested in Quakerism. And so I was, you know, bumping my head up against the glass like a fly on the window, thinking I was going to get through it at some point. <laughs> and, you know, and, and uh, we had talked about John Wimber before. But he didn't really talk about his Quakerism. I don't remember him ever even mentioning it. Mm. I think it was just intrinsic, inside, you know, in his right. practices. Because that's where he got started in the Christian right. path, right? And then, you know, and I was familiar with Richard Foster, mm-hmm. and he would mention it, but it wasn't, over, you know, how do they run their meetings? The, the, the dynamics and the, the mechanics of what Quakers are all, all about mm-hmm. and because I had a deep respect for them historically because they seem to be on the right side of history. Uh, they have the receipts. Mm-hmm. And so, so I have a deep respect of it. And, and it also caused a kind of a, a I don't know, a, a, a contradiction, if you will, or a cognitive dissonance with me as well, because we were warned against Quakers. Uh, they, they didn't have theology. You know, that's the mm. big warning against them with evangelical churches. Um, 
they quake. <laughs> <laughs> they shake, and they got that guy in the oatmeal box, and uh, which isn't a box; it's a cylinder. But um, and so the cognitive dissonance was: here's uh, in evangelical circles, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention's theology is celebrated and mm -hmm. is lifted up as a model of sound biblical theology. When the very name Southern Baptist <laughs> means uh, they were on the wrong side of history mm -hmm. on slavery, and they split not just uh, the, the the Southern and the and the Northern Baptists split over slavery right. and Jim Crow and and uh, using Christianity uh, to mask white supremacy. Right. So that really, man. yeah. And here are the Quakers, the the ones who didn't have correct theology. Uh, but yet they were on the right side of history. And then, you know, and then they, they often make uh, excuses for people like John Calvin, who uh, had a, a colleague basically executed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, they, and they make excuses. Well, that was the times. Well, the Quakers were around in those times, and they were still on the right side of history. So, so, it, so it really made me very intrigued by them in that sense. Really? I don't remember how I met... Uh, the, the writings of Parker Palmer. I, I, mm. I must have just came, came up in an Amazon. Books. You might like this. Right. I think it was one of those <laughs> kind of things. <laughs> we see you like uh, William Penn. You might like Parker, Parker Palmer, you know. So, right. So I think that's how it happened. And a lot later, too. Right. You know, recent years, the last 10 years. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, in Philadelphia, I actually started going to Quaker meetings mm. for several months um there was a a quaker meeting house walking distance from where i live wow. and so i'd get up sunday mornings and it's amazing because it's probably it was two things one i'd already encountered sitting in silence as a practice right um through different retreats and stuff like that and just meditation in general but i'd never encountered it uh, as far as a like a weekly discipline in a um, Christian context, mm, yeah, you know, the only times I'd experienced it, sort of in that sort of thing, is and you know any of the the Eastern religions and things of that nature, and they were the most authentic, welcoming church I had ever encountered. Interesting, you know, like. The Orthodox are probably the least welcoming. Right. The Lutherans are the most welcoming in a fake way. <laughs> I guess they, they have like a nice <laughs> smile on their face. It's an upper Midwest thing. <laughs> it's the way you're unfriendly. <laughs> and uh, but the Quaker, you know, the the Quaker meeting that I encountered, they were very, you know, very much interested in, in you know how I how I'd come to hear about them. You know, they would invite me to share a meal with them and stuff like that. But just just that ability to sit in silence. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember is 30, 40 minutes, something like that. And anyone could stand up and, and share, could speak. Right. If the spirit moved them. And I remember being very intrigued like that by that uh just as a organized slash not really organized situation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's something about that practice that makes you more present to people. So uh, back to Parker Palmer, 
Uh, in fact, I well, I had first heard about him uh, through On Being, the mm. Krista Tippett podcast. But the first time I read a book by him uh, was actually the one you mm. you had uh, recommended. Uh, was it Share Share Your Life? I think Let Your Life Speak. Oh, Let Your Life uh, Speak. Yep, discernment, yep. I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the uh, concepts or principles uh, that um, you were able to learn through your readings and, and stuff of Parker Palmer? You know, I've, you know, I've only read maybe five of his books. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that really I returned to and we covered it as a community, we went through it chapter by chapter uh, was a hidden wholeness. Mm. Um, uh, I think there's there's a subtitle to it too. Uh, living, living an undivided life or toward an undivided life or something like that. You can tell I've read it many times. Um, yeah, it's a hidden wholeness toward an undivided yeah. life. And so, so there's just some really great concepts that we were able to actually implement on a practical level in our in our communal life. And how we conduct meetings and uh, brought us from theory to an actual practice, mm-hmm. and and so he and he's basically outlining outlining the structure of Quaker communities, mm-hmm. right? But I couldn't really glean that from you know writings from the 1700s. So, what were um, some of the things you implemented here at Desert Rain well, specifically from that? Yeah, so he mentions the circle of trust. So that's uh, the clearness committee, um, you know, those, those kinds of things. Uh, sitting in silence together, of course. Uh, but, but in the actual, when, you're, when a group is trying to discern a decision that needs to be made collectively, um, it's very challenging and very uh, quite amazing mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, when a small group of people can't come to a decision. Right. And we can't get in, you know, and the hope is to have an anonymous. Uh, you mean unanimous? Uh, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm a little sleepy today. Yeah. Not anonymous, uh, unanimous, yes. Uh, and it might uh, be anonymous too. But. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, a unanimous decision on something to have the courage to uh, to table it for three months. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to make any move on this. Right. And we'll come back together again. We'll sit in silence again. We'll discuss it and see if there's any new information. And we'll see mm-hmm. see what happens. And they did that with slavery. And he outlines that in that in that book. Um, the Quakers did, you know, right. the, the a, 16, 17, and 1800s. And I think I, I probably have, I'm a little groggy today. Uh, but I think he, he mentions... It took them almost a hundred years to to come to a consensus, mm. as you know, as a the Quakers as a, as a whole, yeah. Right. And but they were still something like fifty to a hundred years earlier than the United States, mm-hmm. uh, who who fought a war over it. You know, yeah, they, they peacefully resolved it. Literally divided the country, in a, yeah, yeah, in a, in a so, war. So yeah, so they they've got the receipts on these kinds of things, and and it's just very impressive to me, and and so. So yeah, so then the decision doesn't become more important than the life of the community. So it was a breakthrough for us. Yeah, and I think too, more of in a general way and not necessarily speaking of of Desert Rain specifically, but being able to um, come together to make a a decision, any any kind of decision as a community, 
to be able to do it all together. Right. And being able to do that, uh, even if it takes, like you were saying, three, four, five, even more months, right? Right. Because if you're just going for, um, you know, a majority, sometimes whoever's the best politician or the exactly. slick, slickest speaker yeah. um, can can uh, move a decision one exactly. way or the other in the way that they think it should be instead of the way it should be for the community. Yeah. And then you, yeah, you can very easily end up in, which which we have, I'm sure, uh, in violation of the, the book of James, the letter of James, of, of early churches showing partiality to the wealthy, mm-hmm. to the intelligent, to the to the outspoken, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing, and and so it's a serious issue, and it's seldom addressed in churches. Yeah, and I mean, and those things, those things you just listed off, are very attractive. Yeah, in general, exactly. Most churches don't put uh, impoverished, uneducated people on their boards. Well, they they barely they barely <laughs> let them in the door of the church. Yeah, yeah. We won't even I think we spoke that. we spoke about that in one of the earlier episodes about how uh, churches will like make a an outreach church outreach right. church yes. in the quote unquote bad neighborhoods exactly um, and sort of send them money and and things from afar. Yeah, so their club can stay the same and mm-hmm. be homogenous. Yeah. Very interesting. And and I know one of the things uh, you pointed out to me uh, about Parker Palmer in general was, uh, and, and I've experienced this too, but just his ability to take uh, sort of these heady, complex, maybe hard to understand ideas right. and boil them down to uh, everyday language. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think that's a Quaker... Mm. tradition as well, you know, to, to plain, use plain language, plain clothing. Uh, in other words, it's a, it's a respect to reality. Um, you know, Christians, we claim that God is ultimate reality. Right. Um, we call reality God, you know, and in secular terms, reality is reality and to be committed to reality. So often religion is used and spirituality as well is used to bypass reality, mm. the reality of myself. Uh, it keeps me deflecting on, deflecting from myself to others or to other things. And um, so this is a call to enter into the simplicity of the matter. Right. You know, I really am an a-hole, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Well, and I think, too, just having a practical uh, spirituality maybe is a good way to put it. Um because that, you know, because there is something important about being connected with that divine energy, right? That yeah, we, absolutely, yeah. That we call God, but it's also how do we tap into that and stay yeah. in stay in the present moment? I, there's a, I can't remember exactly how it goes in the recovery world to to have our head in the clouds uh, with a higher power and our feet firmly on the ground. Exactly. And and twelve steps really outlines the process, the slow process of a, of a life of repentance. See, see repentance isn't a one time conversion right. deal, and now I never have to. You know, it's to rethink your life as the spirit uh, shakes you up, as reality shakes you up, mm-hmm. to rethink, uh, 
to re-examine your certitudes and uh, things that you've come to to call rock solid. Right. And you realize uh, this was just scaffolding that I put up around the building. It's meant to be, uh, uh, you know, it's not meant to be permanent. It's supposed to be taken yeah. down. Yeah, sort of. Well, and the beautiful thing about too is not only the slow process, but also as far as the 12 steps are concerned, the reality that it's a, it's a lifelong process. Exactly. You don't, you don't graduate at a certain point yeah. when, you, when you've gotten a certain amount of quote unquote knowledge or time or uh, influence or any, anything else. Yeah. And often it's sold. Christianity is sold and, and modern, uh, the uh, body, mind, spirit industry uh, is, is uh, marketed to people as a self-enhancement. Mm-hmm. You know, if you pray, it'll, it'll beef up your soul. If you read the Bible, it'll make you strong. Um, if you uh, meditate, if you uh, find these healing energies, that mm-hmm. kind of thing, you'll, you'll know your chakras. And what, ha- what happens is it just beefs up the ego and, and it ends up, uh, instead of uh, building up the self-esteem, which is the unconditional love of God in your life, it builds up uh, a sense of superiority over other people and becomes a whole new problem of spiritual pride and ego kind of thing. Right. And no one's immune from that. Yeah, because you can find it in any any religion, any uh, self-help group. Yeah. All those things, all those things can be a reality. And my my observation seems to be that through those practices, as you get sort of you, as you're describing it, you lean into the self righteous side of it. Exactly. That you can stumble and fall, and then you use those same practices to grow in a more authentic way. Exactly. Whether it's prayer, or, you know, reading the gospels or meditation, um, those things catch you. If you're lucky. Right. Right. Because sometimes you can just stay stuck in the that superiority phase. Yeah. And, and a group can fall into it. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. A, a whole, yeah. So. Yeah, anyone can. A whole community can have mm-hmm. this communal, communally shared superiority over others. and Well, especially when things are good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, success you know. is a worse. Yeah. You know, which is which is great for the Quakers because the, the, the name was originally a uh, – you know, Insult. it was a derogatory <laughs> name for them. And they and they said, yeah, we, that's good for us. That is who we are. Yeah, and Parker Palmer's it. writing is that way. He's very honest about – he's brutally honest with himself and merciful to himself at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, an episode that aired before this, I don't remember which one, but we talked about when he shares about his, his deep depression that he right. experienced. In his 40s, yeah. yeah. Right. And he had had a lot of um, external success at that point. Right. He had sold books. He had been, I, I believe he had been a professor. Yeah, he was, he was on his way. Yeah, he had yeah. already written a couple of books. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and so uh, he's very upfront about dealing with it. And, and the way he wrote about it, too, was talking about how people had mis- made mistakes interacting with him. Well, he was in depression. And he also talked about times that he has made mistakes yeah. interacting with people that are in maybe not depression, but even grieving or sadness. And yeah. 
And uh, I thought that was a very interesting way of how he, he uh, it was a chapter, one chapter specifically out of the book we mentioned uh, earlier. Um, I th- and I thought it was a very honest take. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's what really attracts me to his writing, for sure. It's that honesty, and and that, and that seems to be the the link between him and John Wimber, another mm. you know Quaker, and Richard Foster as well. Richard Foster is not so personal in his you know in his writing, but he's you know he's had longevity and in, in living that way, you know. So. Right, and he and uh, Richard Foster, and we'll be doing a, an episode about him eventually. Uh, he seems to be. I don't want to say his writing's more academic, but it leans more that way um, from some of the stuff I've read. Yeah, yeah. Academic in the sense that it's still in that simple speak, but he uses a lot of citations and a lot of right. quotes and things like that, and, and less personal experiences. Yeah. Whereas Parker Palmer, he does cite and quote and all that kind of stuff, but he leans into his experiences. Yeah, he's yeah. And it's just a choice. I'm not saying one's better. Right, than right. Yeah, yeah. Just, that's just two different yeah. uh, writing styles. Uh, and so to c- kind of go back uh, half a step to, and I, and I don't know for you if this is more of a Quaker thing or more of a Parker Palmer thing, but but sort of the your interpretation of their um, idea around solitude. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I just can go from his writing. Yeah, right. Because there's not a, a huge Quaker presence here in the you know in these mm-hmm. parts. And the group that does meet in El Paso, Los Cruces, I haven't had a chance to meet any of them. Yeah, yet. I spent some time with the one, the group that meets the the friends meeting in Las Cruces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so he he would hit on the same contemplative vein as Merton and uh, you know Henry Nowen and other writers that you're you know, basically the quality of your solitude is intimately connected with the quality of your community, communal life, you know, and and I think he, he mentions uh, solitudes. We are solitary people living in community, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a, a great concept with that. And so I'm not sure, is that what you meant? Or, yeah, of course. Or, uh, yeah. Well, uh, well, his, actually, I'd go back also, he... He has a way of writing, and, and, I, and I'm, I suspect it's also a Quaker way, with, which doesn't get bogged down in religious and theological mm. arguments and concepts. And so, so he just simply calls uh, the, the thing the soul. So he, mm-hmm. and it's that inner voice within you, your true self. Um, but what was revolutionary for me, in particular to Palmer's writing, is that he, his metaphor for the soul is a wild animal, mm. which that really resonates, especially with with Celtic spirituality and um, and uh, and that that kind of thing. That, that there's a wildness in God, there's a wildness in you, and so he extends the metaphor in that book. Um, you know, if you want to engage or encounter this animal, a wild animal, you, you have to. Be a- absolutely still. You can't come right. crashing into the, <laughs> the into jungles. the forest or the desert, and, you know, and, and start calling it out and whistling. Uh, you know, you have to be extremely still. You know, and a- Annie Dillard talks a lot about that as far as literally, you know, with with a certain animal that she wanted to see. Mm. She had to let her cigarette burn, 
uh, all the way to the end and be absolutely still just to see. I forget what the animal was in her book. Um, and so that's that's a powerful concept. So as we begin to be still in, in the, and, the, and the silence around us is the wilderness, then your soul can speak and tell you its truth. And so, wow. And, yeah, and I think too, much like maybe st- you know spending the night in the forest right. or the desert or the jungle, whatever it might be, there's something terrifying. And it, this seems to be a common thing that I, I've encountered talking to people about sitting in silence. There seems to be a certain terror the first hand few the first few times you sit in, in just real silence yeah, yeah you're not distracting yourself with a mantra you're not uh you know you don't have you know nice yoga music in the background right. and not that those things those things are helpful for sure yeah but the times that you just sit there in silence with no other distraction yeah there's something extremely terrifying about that and if you do it on a regular basis It'll come back up. Right. And there's like a cycle of like where you're comfortable in silence, you're comfortable in silence, you're comfortable in silence, and then you're terrified of it, terrified, terrified of it. And I think it it goes to that inner – what we're talking about of of our inner life. Yeah. The unpredictability of it. Yeah. And we've been trained all our lives to uh, keep that in a cage, keep Mm. it in a – keep it in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting that – you know, we're in Advent right now, and one of the central figures is John the Baptist, mm. John the forerunner, and he right. he comes out of the desert, out of the wild, as a voice calling, you know. And, and the way they paint the picture of him, visually, he yeah, he's, would yeah, have he's a wild, wild man, yeah, total wild <laughs> man, you know. And so, and, and it connects to me with uh, Howard Thurman, who said, uh, only you know the, when you practice this silence, this silent prayer and sitting in the presence of God, um, the voice or the sound of the genuine will finally come to you, and you'll learn to hear that what mm-hmm. it sounds like, you know. And, and in biblical terms, it's your name; it's the name that God has given you, mm-hmm. and so it's your soul name, if you will. And and so yeah, and we've been trained all our lives to not be that person. Well, and I think too, going back to like. The necessity of sitting in silence to hear that, yeah, that voice, your true self. You know, in 2020, almost 2021, we have so many gadgets and widgets and uh, things to distract us or to yeah. be quote unquote more productive, right? That trying to, and not that you need to sell anyone on sitting in silence. But trying to sell someone, trying to convince someone yeah. to sit in silence, you sound like a lunatic. Yeah, yeah, you can't be. <laughs> it, it's it's like James Finley's story. Uh, you know, when he was leaving the monastery, he asked. I think it was uh, one of the older monks who was in charge of. Uh, I think his expert was philosophy or something, and he asked this older monk, uh, "Well, you know, when I leave here, what? How do I communicate all this to anybody?" Mm. And he said, "You don't." You can't. It will communicate itself through you because it's true. And so you have to, so there's a lot of trust involved. That's really what faith is. Faith isn't being certitude of, of these cognitive, uh, cerebral ideas. Uh, 
you know, all right, so you believe that uh, Mary was a virgin. How did that change your life? How did that change the world? So it's just a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's not a, an inner reality that's worked its way through your life. And so that's, that's what we're at. That's what the contemplatives are after. That's what the Quakers were after. Um, and so, and that's what the spirit is after in us. Well, and I, and I think that's where it's interesting you bring that up because I think that's where um, this idea of grace come in, comes to Absolutely, play. Absolutely, yeah. Right, like uh, we haven't mentioned it on this, but you and I have talked about it where um, contemporary churches talk a lot about grace, but then part of their theology is you got to go out there and save people. Yeah, yeah, right. right. That's one of the things you you pointed out uh, as a talking point on this episode. Mm, but yeah. then, but then there's also a grace of what you're talking about about allowing these i to be able to embody these ideas. Yeah, and let the truth speak through you. That's where the real grace occurs, exactly. or at least that's where the grace has occurred in my life. Yeah, exactly. There's, yeah, and, and if I'm trying to fix you, if I have a secret agenda or not so secret. Right, if you, you could be, fix you, yeah, you could be, a lot of people are straight up in yeah, your face about it. Or to save you or mm-hmm. to get you to, to do you something. To yeah, uh, as long as I have that, as long as I'm clinging on to that agenda, you or anyone else will never feel safe enough in my presence mm-hmm. To be healed, to bring true salvation, which is the literal word salve or a healing of the soul. Uh, again, uh, James Finley says it really well. Uh, when I can, when you can sit with someone who doesn't invade you or abandon you, and you can sit, there can be some healing, a, mm-hmm. a space for healing, and then you won't uh, abandon yourself, and you realize that God has not abandoned you, and so. So then a real salvation occurs, a real healing occurs at that point. Well, I think the beautiful part, too, is, is uh, well, I, I mean, I, I saw a, a quote, one of those witty uh, Instagram quotes today, but it, it was very profound and, and right up this alley is a healer isn't someone that you encounter that heals you. A healer is someone that you encounter to learn to heal yourself. Yeah, exactly. The and, spirit within you. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, the the God, the divine presence, yeah, all that. The inner light. It is, doesn't. It doesn't abandon you. Right. And that inner light is always with you, and it's just being reminded that it's there. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, often prayer and mindfulness, meditation. And those kinds of things are are sold to people as you'll you'll receive peace mm. if you do these things, right? And you might, um, but in the in the gospel sense, it's that's not the end of it. The end of it is is uh, transformation, yeah, which, which occurs with things. repentance. That's what repentance is. It's a it's a changing of your perspective, a changing of your mind, and, and your actions, your behavior. And so um, often, what happens. Yes, if you do your 10-minute uh, meditation or you do your little quiet time with God, you'll be able to sustain a, enough little mental peace. Mm-hmm. But you haven't encountered the crucified Christ and your joint fellowship with that crucified one. Um, and so there, there, 
if you spend a little bit more time, then what happens? You do go into the wilderness of your soul. And uh, Thomas Keating calls it the, the, your unconsciousness will begin to, begin to unload. Mm. In other words, the traumas of your life, um, a biblical term would be your sin, it begins to become exposed and brought to the light. And that is not a peaceful process. Well, and even it's the painful. Right. And even the uh, trauma of your ancestors. Y- yeah, all that. Yeah. Because yeah. muscle memory. The DNA in our bones. Yeah. yeah. You know, my Irish DNA s- still feels the hunger burn. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and so, yeah, so this becomes pretty tricky then. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really a believer in uh, repentance without some sort of restitution or or restoration Mm. relationship. Um, It's great that the blood of Jesus covers the fact that you were an asshole to everyone, uh, but how about show, how about make some effort at restitution with people that you harmed and wounded, if you can even approach them anymore? That's, you know... Well, you know, and that goes to the the ninth step in the 12-step program. Exactly. You know, make direct amends... Uh, to such people, except when to do so would harm them or others. Exactly. You know, and so you have to, or, you know, in, in that in that context, you have to, there's a certain um, discernment that's yeah. necessary, and that, you know that's one of the reasons that if you're working the steps, you have a, a mentor figure that you exactly. can discuss these things with. Because if someone comes to me and, and lays out a situation. I can't make that call for them. No. They have to make the decision if if it's going to harm them or someone else. I can I can ask them questions. Yeah. I can listen and I can give some recommendations, but at the end of the day only only that individual knows if they can approach that situation. Exactly. That's see that's repentance. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we're that's the biblical, if you will, that that's what the early church uh was writing about and that's what that's at the core of, of all authentic spirituality. So it's not just the self-enhancement kind of thing that all, all it does is uh, Christianize, if you will, the, the ego, mm-hmm. which uh, ends up doing more damage to people than good. Rich Mullins said it well, too. He said, not only will your vices, uh, not only are your vices uh, harmful to yourself and others, but even more so your virtues can actually mm. be harmful to you and to yeah, others around to you. to those around you. Yeah, so it's just a, it's a baptized ego is all it is, or or what Paul would call a, a, the flesh, which is a poor translation into English, but uh, the flesh or the uh, the uh, the outer man, I mm-hmm. think it was another translation. The person the that encounters woman. the world. Yeah, you know, and so... Well, and I th- and the way I sometimes uh, think about spirituality or even spiritual principles is that it's it's a it's a swimming pool, right? And you have mm. the you have the the shallow end where oh yeah, yeah. where everyone gets in and sort of begins there, and, and there's uh, well, in real spirituality, it, it's probably a better uh, thing as you start in a pool and eventually you end up in the ocean. But sticking to the pool analogy, there's a 20-foot end. Right. Right, the 20 feet deep where it's like you make it – if you feel called to, you make your way 
you can stay in the shallow end, right? I think that's what we're talking about right now is you can yeah. stay in the shallow end and say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian or uh, I yeah. meditate every day. Yeah, I'm or, spiritual but not religious. Right. You know, which, whatever your brand is. Right. So you can you can stick around there. Um, you know, even, even as we've discussed in this uh, episode in the 12-step program, you can you can stay in that and, you know, just not drink and and you know, have continue living a similar life, but you're, you're not drinking. Right. Um, but with these ideas of meditation, contemplation, uh, prayer, um, trying to authentically live these principles, you're going to inch your way day by day. Sometimes you're going to be stagnant, you know, so maybe, maybe you're in the 10 foot area for a long time. Um, but that, that inner light will continue signaling you deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, exactly. You know, for some people, they wake up and they're in the middle of the ocean with, with yeah. no one around. And that's most, I think that's most people. I mean, Parker Palmer calls himself a, a contemplative by catastrophe. Mm. In other words, uh, he didn't go out to just go seek God and to become right. a spiritual person. It was more uh, a catastrophe would hit his life and then... You learn how to pray. And I think that's most most people. Well, uh, and so yeah, I think I it's think, okay, and I think it's good. Well, I think it's important to have that deconstruction phase, yeah. um, so to speak, and and so so maybe that would that would be an interesting uh, road to travel down. Is is uh, you know for yourself, where have these specifically the things that Parker Palmer talks about? helped you during a deconstruction phase? Well, you you mean the practice itself or? The practices that he's talked about where you've applied it in a a low time in your life. Well, one that comes to mind immediately would be, uh, it would probably be when I first started practicing centering prayer as outlined Mm -hmm. by contemplative outreach. Thomas Keating, right? Uh, which is uh, twenty minutes of, of silence. Uh, you focus on one word. Uh, you use one word. It's a meaningless word, so that when your thoughts begin to trail off, you return to that word. Okay, that kind of thing. And so there was a time where I was doing that. It was about ten years ago, and within us, you know, this probably happened within seconds. Mm-hmm. Take me a minute to actually explain right. or more, but it, this was all within seconds. It was a realization that my ego uh, was a, was dependent or is dependent on rejection. My ego, uh, my false self, if you will, in right. order to feel like a person has to be rejected. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as that realization hit, the next thought was... Uh, and so, so I was like, I was watching my thoughts, mm-hmm. if you will, the witness within, if you will. Exactly. Whereas Paul says, I'm a side, I'm beside myself. So it was kind of like that. And, and so the next thought was, uh, all right, great. Now that I've recognized this problem, rejection will never uh, hurt me again. And rejection <laughs> may never even come to my life again. Right. Hot dog. And then you're the, you're the, the lotto winner. Yeah. And then the spirit or the inner witness or the true self, the soul or whatever you want to call it, whatever's languages you're comfortable with uh, uh, was the next realization, the third realization, which was, uh, no, uh, 
Absolutely, rejection is going to still come, and it will still hurt. You just will realize that you don't need it to feel empowered. You don't need that kind of empowerment anymore. You just simply don't need it. And and so that's kind of... So then moments would happen within that year, you know, where social situations mm-hmm. where... Uh, uh, what I would call, you know, a microaggression. Uh, in my head, it's not so micro. Right, uh, right. It becomes a yeah a big aggression. Exactly, and yeah. So these microaggressions that we talk about, uh, and and I was able to just kind of slow the script down within that moment and say, look, you don't you recognize this rejection? They probably don't mean it, but even if they do, it's none of your business, mm-hmm. uh, and you don't need this to become a person you already are. I am is within you. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a very, uh, uh, freeing thing for me. And so, okay. So you said that happened, let's just say 10 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Roughly. So, more. so like today when you encounter those, well, I mean, not today because we're socially distanced and <laughs> not, not yeah, going no. into so, social interactions, but you know, in, in the recent, in the last, 12 to 18 months when someone has rejected you in some way, shape or form, does that, does that memory of that moment from your centering prayer comes up or is it, is it more embodied? Yeah, it's more embodied now for sure. So I don't, um, sometimes it it almost comes across like I'm too dull to even recognize that someone's trying to insult me. And because they're not really, you know. Right. And so we'll make jokes, uh, Marsh and I, like one of our recurring jokes, we'll watch football and when they go into the huddle uh, on TV, you know, Mm -hmm. one of us will say, they're talking about you. (laughs) Because that's really what all this is about. You think think things are happening when they're not happening. It's all a, a shell game. It's, you know, the illusion that the ego creates. And so nowadays it's, it's more about dealing with, uh, uh, maybe past rejections that are, that were truly hurtful, uh, revisiting that stuff. Yeah. And and embracing the person that I was then or being ashamed of things too, you know, embarrassed by things and, and almost traveling back in time, if you will, and taking that young person and saying, you know, yes, you're a dork, but you're loved, you know, and, and just, you know, put uh, embracing myself. You know, and that's a man reaching I, across time, right? Which which is important to go back and heal those either actual harms or yeah. or perceived harms. Yeah, and they happen in my experience naturally, like a river flowing. I don't know if I mentioned this in my last. You know, in June, I was I was in the hospital for thirteen days. That's how I spent most of my pandemic, and. Uh, <laughs> Recovering from multiple heart surgeries. Yeah, I tried not to get coronavirus in the hospital. And and so the night or the morning before, I don't know if I mentioned this on another episode, but uh, so I apologize to all you thousands of listeners out there. Uh, But there was a, yeah, the moment of the, the, or the morning of the bypass surgery, uh, a technician came by at like six in the morning. And the, the surgery was going to be at like 7.30 a.m. The surgeons uh-huh. do their stuff really early. And put me in a wheelchair, took me into the hospital, right? the, the, the ward, and took me to a, a lab and put me in this glass booth. And, and the room, this lab was ancient looking. Mm. It was like I was in another, 
We went back in time or something. The, you went through the, a, yeah, the, the a chairs. The chairs were old. They're the things you'd see like in the, in the you know in, in movies from the fifties mm. and things like. That. So he put me in this glass booth that also looked really old, and he and he did a series of breathing uh, tests on me uh, to see if I would survive the the ventilator okay. or not, which was very discomforting to know they were doing this test an hour before right, the actual right before. surgery. What if I had failed all those tests? Would they, you know, oh God, go ahead. And so I'm doing the in. test and I'm sitting on this wooden bench inside this glass box. And then um, it, bam, it hit me. I, I would in 1977, uh, at the age of nine, I think, mm. I was in that same glass booth with pneumonia right. and the flu. And they were doing breathing tests on me there. And I could feel that scared child. I remember the feelings of being so tired of tests, being exhausted, uh, being nine years old. And here I am in, the, you know. Probably scared and confused. Yeah, with the flu and with uh, pneumonia. And just, and so there was a real reconciliation, if you will, with that child. Uh, here I am, you know, 50, 52, whatever. Well, that's, a, that's amazing. Cause I had a, actually funny enough, talking about the Quakers and sitting in silence, I had a similar reconciliation with, with a younger version of myself. I was at this retreat and I, I, it was a 10 day silent meditation retreat. So we're just <sighs> sitting there in silence and I, I see this visualization of me, uh, committing suicide as an adult. Mm. And when it first popped up, I, I, I kind of shook it off and I was like, I'm, I'm not suicidal. Like I love, yeah. I love my life. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally sitting in the most beautiful views in, in the yeah. middle of Switzerland. And it's like, my life wow. is amazing. Suicide, get out of here. Yeah. And it, so I, I get, I get back into the meditation and, and it bubbles up again, mm. but this time I let it play out. It's like, okay, well this isn't an accident. Right. right? And so I had just moved away from Philly and one of the uh, famous um, bridges is the the Ben Franklin. And in this visualization, I'm in a straight jacket. I jump off the Ben Franklin bridge. Mm. I hit the water and I drowned. Oh, man. And I visualized this whole thing. It was very brutal. But as soon as I died, the moment I died in this visualization – this uh, sadness came bubbling to the surface and these emotions I had when I was 15 all came wow. bubbling to the surface. Because when I was 15, I did have suicidal ideations mm. uh, for several months and thank God I never acted on them. But I, I never really I had I'd only dealt with them intellectually yeah. up until that point. And so I start crying. Tears just start running down my face. And my next visualization is me. So this would have been three years ago. So 34-year-old Dorian has his arm around 15-year-old Dorian, Dorian telling him, I love you. You're loved. Mm. Your, your life is fine. You'll be fine. Uh, and that reconciliation, like you were saying, yeah. being in that glass box. And it was it was profound. Yeah, because it, it was a profound thing. It was at a cellular level. It wasn't yeah. at the logical. I didn't think myself into that. No, you can't come up with that stuff. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's just it's just, and it's funny because 
as part of the notes for the show, you mentioned Benjamin Franklin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And his. <laughs> so do you want to tell that story a little bit about his Quaker? Yeah, that's some of my early experiences. Yeah let's, yeah, let's go. You know, early college, I was a literature major. So we read American literature and Ben Franklin's autobiography is on the list. And, and so he talks about how he, you know, when he was a young man, he attended a, a Quaker meeting. Mm-hmm. So he described it. They were sitting there. Uh, in silence for an hour, and he fall, he fell asleep in it. And I think he, he makes a joke, maybe, or at least I made it for him. Right. It was one of the best naps he ever had, or something <laughs> like that. But it just uh, it just stuck with me because they didn't. He doesn't record anything of them judging him mm. or trying to change him. They just simply welcomed him, and he, he was probably snoring, you know. And they still they they know how to deal with that. As opposed to the their contemporaries, the Puritans, who actually had a, a, an usher job who had a stick to make and if sure. you fell asleep in church, they'd literally hit you with this stick. You got and, the, uh, the bamboo shoot yeah, to the back of the head. You don't listen to this so sermon. To yeah, and so so it's just the contrast of the Puritans and the Quakers was was definitely uh, it wasn't lost on me at the age of eighteen seventeen. So well, it's 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 amazing to, I mean, beyond just this story, the the importance to be accepted as you are. Yeah, so huge. Showing up, whatever context it is, and being welcomed for the person you are. Yeah, because I know for myself, most of my life, and even I mean, I still do it today. I think, oh, how should I present myself? to these people in this context so that they'll like me. Yeah, or won't hurt me. Yeah, or won't kick me out. Yeah, won't reject me if they see who I really am. Actually, Yeah, that's actually a better way to put yeah. it. Won't reject me. Yeah. You know, and, and the people that that have influenced my life the most as far as personal relationships are those people that I can open up and be myself with. Yeah. And let that guard down. You know, and most churches have that conceptually, mm-hmm. theologically. God loves you more than you can ever know. Uh, God loves you unconditionally. The grace of God but, is with you. Yeah, the grace of God is, you know, is always prevalent. And But they can't resist just like eating Lay's potato chips to try to change you immediately mm-hmm. and not just simply let that grace of God, let that unconditional acceptance sit for a while and, and and let that person come to that revelation on their own. Uh, and so I, I so that's why a lot of people don't feel safe in churches. They can't ask the, the real questions and, and it becomes harmful. You know, funerals become very harmful. Uh, you know, well, they deflect and they project mm-hmm. instead. Oh, well, she, she's in a better place, you know, and as they say that to their children that are sitting there in the front row, Right. Or bereft of a mother. And it's like, no, you're not dealing with real issues at this point. And um and so you're you're uh pain phobic, if you will, and anger phobic and fear phobic. Even death phobic. And death phobic, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's not a real uh, authentic spirituality will make you go into those things and ask those questions and ask the next question. And most people don't feel that that they can do that in most churches. Well, and I think part of that too, you know, not to let anyone off the hook, but 
growing, you know, in the context of, of America, where uh, efficiency is a top priority. Right. Uh, grieving isn't efficient. Feelings right. aren't efficient. Yeah. Allowing someone to sit uh, and learn about the unconditional love of God yeah. or the grace of God, that process usually isn't efficient. Right. And it makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's and so I have <laughs> to set up my world. I have to use Jesus and the gospel to make me comfortable. You know, and I used to make a joke with my classes. I would say, you know, I've said it once, I've said it again. The entire purpose of this class is uh, centered around my comfort. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just a joke, but that's, you know, that's how we live our lives. Well, I think about, you know, like a pilot for a commercial airline. They have their pre takeoff checklist. Right. Right. And so I think that idea is sometimes um, transferred over into uh, the church or, you know, other, other, it doesn't just have yeah, to be a it's, church. It's cultural. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, a group of people and it's like, okay, uh, if you, if you check off these, these things before you take off, then you're going to be cured or healed or right. saved or whatever it is. And it's like, well, no. that's maybe that was how your checklist got right. ticked off. Right. Like those were the things that you went through or you explored right. to get to where you are today. But 10 people walk into the door to encounter yeah. you. They're going to have 10 different checklists of things that they have to exactly. step through. Um, and it's not its not going to look identical to what you went through. No, absolutely not. Nor should it. No, it's all right. about that's diversity. life. Yeah, the, that's what the Apostle Paul talks about, the spiritual gifts. There's a, mm, a massive yeah, diversity a of gifts, you know. And he mentions some just to – but I, I don't believe those are the final only gifts. I think he's – right. He lists all all of those gifts as just an example of the the multitude of diverse gifts that, that the spirit uses, and and so yeah. And and I it's think it's not convenient for us though. No, no, it's very. <laughs> we have a meeting to run. <laughs> <laughs> we got we got numbers we need to reach. Yeah. Uh, and I think too, going back to the diversity of gifts, it's also important to remember that certain people can use or have certain gifts at certain seasons in their life. Yeah. So th- things that served an individual, things that served me in my 20s yeah. would not serve me today in my late 30s. Exactly. In fact, Parker Palmer mentions a story, uh, an old Irish story of uh, you know an Irish monastery, and one of the monks uh, fell sick and died, mm. and so they entombed him. And then a few days later, they hear him you know knocking at the tomb, uh, and they realize he's been resurrected, so they let him out. And, uh, and he tells them, yes, I went to heaven, but it's nothing like what we believe or teach. It's totally different. And so they uh, forced him back into the tomb <laughs> and locked it up and sealed him in. And so, Cut off all the yeah, air. Yeah, and that's basically what we do. <laughs> well, because we don't, yeah, our ego isn't ready to yeah. think that everything we've worked towards is <laughs> Exactly. Is Just ignore that, that banging at the door. You know, it'll, it'll stop in it'll a little while. Away. It'll go away. <laughs> Uh, well, beautiful, Mr. Morrison. Uh, we've we've gotten through another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Uh, thank you for everyone listening. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for to Parker Palmer. Yes, obviously this episode is is for you, and and we appreciate your writing and the podcast you've done yes. and, and everything. Your faithfulness. Yes, and. Um, 
you know, hopefully we embody that, uh, those ideas that you've, you've given to us in, in normal speak and, and uh, we've given, done the Quakers some justice. Hope so, yeah. I hope so. Our so apologies, funny. if not. <laughs> so, uh, yep, that's a, that'll be a wrap for us. Uh, once again, this is Dorian Mason, David Morrison. Thank you. Signing off. <laughs> <laughs>